Exodus 33. If you don't have a Bible, ask Santa to bring you one tonight. <laughs> a real Bible with paper and ink. <laughs> um, we're on the fourth Sunday in Advent. I love the, the scriptures that pertain to Christmas and the birth of Jesus. We're going to start in Exodus 33 this morning and bounce via Isaiah into the Gospel of John. Exodus 33, verse 17, we'll start from. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand by, or you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And further on in Exodus chapter 34, Moses describes what he saw in verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. What do you get for the man or woman who has everything? You know, what, what I'm sure Miriam and Aaron had trouble picking gifts for Moses because Moses had a lot. Moses, when he wanted food, just went outside and the food fell out of the sky. If he was tired of manna and he wanted some quail, he just walked out and the quail was flying so low that he just reached up and grabbed it. Didn't need a friend with a shotgun. He just grabbed quail and we had quail that night. His life was marked by miracles. He was the revolutionary leader of the greatest movement of people of all time. He had an incredible relationship with God. He knew God's guidance and God's intimate presence. And if that's not enough, he had a stick that turned into a snake. He had everything that anyone could ever desire. This was a man who had so much, yet Moses still wants more. Or it would be better maybe to say Moses knew that he needed more. There's a difference between what we need and what we want. It's a really good distinction to be able to make in life. Moses knew that he needed more. And in Exodus 33, he's having this conversation with God. 
And I can imagine, I don't know about you, but sometimes things come into my mind and they're, they're good things, but they slip out of my mouth. And I maybe didn't intend them to come out of my mouth. And I sometimes wonder, did Moses in verse 18, when he said, show me your glory, did he, did he just stop for a minute and think, oh goodness, I've said it. <laughs> it came out. I, I dared to have the audacity in the presence of God to actually say, show me your glory. I dared to ask more. He knew he needed to see the glory of God. And what is glory? In, in the Bible, there are various things that we associate with glory. In Luke chapter 2, whenever the angels appeared to the shepherds, it says the glory of God shone around them. And the glory is connected with light. And in Revelation chapter 4, we, we read of the living creatures and the angels and the 24 elders giving glory to God, which is praise. But that's not what this means. When Moses said, show me your glory, I don't know what he meant, but what he got was what God wanted, I believe, us to connect with the word glory. Because whenever Moses asked to see glory, God did not switch on bright lights. There was no music. What God showed to Moses was his character. It was who he was. He, he said in verse 19, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name. Now, your name in the Bible is your character. It is who you are. And in verse 6 of, of chapter 34 that we read as well, we, we see that the Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving, holding the guilty, responsible for what they have done. God lets Moses see his character. That is what Moses knew he needed. Um, and in trying to find a, a definition of glory, I landed on, on John Piper's website, and he said, glory is God's holy perfection going public. The holiness of God, the perfection of God, everything that is just incredible and awesome about God suddenly being revealed and understood to some extent. That's glory. Whenever we start to understand the character of God, we are seeing glory. Piper goes on to say, when, when that goes public in creation, the heavens tell the glory of God. And human beings manifest his glory because we're created in his image and we are trusting his promises so that we make him look gloriously trustworthy. In creation, the psalmist writes that the heaven declares the glory of God. As we look at creation around us, if our eyes are open, we see him and we see his glory and his goodness. In humanity functioning as it should we should see the glory and the character of God in human beings. It's what the church is called to do in this world. Show the world what the image of God actually should look like. Two of the things that are mentioned in, in verse 6 of Exodus 34 are God's grace and faithfulness. It says in the NIV, grace and faithfulness. It says in the older version, slightly more literally, grace and truth are two of the things that are referred to. And every person needs to see what Moses saw. Every person needs to see glory. Deep in the heart of every human being, in this room, in this town, in this nation, on this planet, there is a need to see glory that supersedes all other needs that we have. 
There are other things that we need. We need forgiveness. We need someone to deal with our sin. We need someone to give us eternal life. But above all of those, all of those flow out of a revelation of who God actually is. We need to see his character and his glory. Moses got a glimpse of God's back and did not see his face. And Moses saw glory again at the very end of Exodus between The portion we read is in the middle of a long description of how the tabernacle is to be built and furnished. And when it is finished, in Exodus chapter 40, if you have a Bible, turn on a few pages to to the end of Exodus 40. Moses (coughs) finishes everything. And it says, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. This is verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Get that word, tabernacle. This big tent that moved around with God's people. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This glory that Moses saw was associated geographically located in the tabernacle. God's not restricted to that, but that's where he chose to reveal himself to his people at that time. So Moses needed to see glory. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. Incredibly important passage where Isaiah is way ahead of his time. He's about 800 years ahead of his time in what he sees in chapter 40. And I'm going to John after Isaiah, and, and if you know John, this is just, this is all over John, this passage in Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. There's this call in Isaiah to prepare. This is the language of a coming king. This preparation of the roads and and removing all the obstacles so that the king could come to the city. And these are words that are spoken again by John the Baptist in in the Gospels. And Isaiah says in verse 5, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Moses said, I need to see it. Isaiah said, it's coming. There's a coming time whenever God's glory will be revealed. His character. When I say the word glory, you think character. What he is like. There's an awful lot of people don't know what God is like. And frankly, an awful lot of Christians don't know what God is like. They project themselves onto him. God is like what I want him to be. Instead of actually discovering ourselves through his word and through Jesus, who he really is. Isaiah says it's coming. You're going to see the glory of God. And a little bit further down the passage in verse 6, Isaiah hears a voice saying to him, Cry out, 
Isaiah, I've got something I want you to shout about. I've got something I want you to declare. And Isaiah says at the end of verse 6, what is it? What shall I cry? What's the message? What do you want me to to proclaim? And further down in verse 9, he hears the content of the message. Verse 9, he says, you who bring good tidings, good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. (laughs) The glory that's coming. That Isaiah says you need to get ready for this because there's glory coming. It is God himself coming among his people to reveal who he actually is. And I want you to see that in verse 9, Isaiah doesn't say whisper it. He doesn't say, you know, say it with hushed tones so that not too many people hear. He doesn't say be slightly ashamed or embarrassed about it. He says go on to the mountain, go on to the high place, go go to Jerusalem, lift up your voice and shout fearlessly that God is coming. Fearlessly. Sometimes when we're, when we're speaking to people, there, there's a fear rises within us. If I mention Jesus, if I am clear about the gospel, if I'm clear about why these doors are open on a Thursday morning or a Friday night or any other time, that, that I will put people off, that I will offend them. They don't want it. The Bible says, and I believe if we're, if we're obedient to this, God will favor us. He says, shout it out. Don't hold back. Don't hold back. It doesn't mean you're slapping people around the head with your old family King James version. It means you're declaring through your actions and through your speech, your conversation, how you're directing them, how you're talking about Jesus. You're declaring this is your God. So Moses says, I need to see your glory. I want to see your glory, Lord. Isaiah says, it's coming And then John, in John chapter 1, I always go to John chapter 1 with sort of fear and trembling because it's like Castlewell and Maze, you know. Once I get in here, it can take a long time to get out. But Aaron sang an extra song, which means the throat has been strained that little bit more. And don't worry, it'll not go on too long. John's gospel starts very differently than the others. He doesn't talk about shepherds and wise men. He starts talking about the Word. And we know that by the, the Word, he means Jesus. And verse 14 is, I think, my favorite verse in the whole Bible. I just love this. I can get lost here again and again and again. The Word became flesh. Literally, carne, incarnation. Put on meat. (laughs) The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Moses said we need to see it. Isaiah said it's coming. And John says I've seen it. (laughs) I have seen it. He is the first one who who declares, I have seen the glory of God. And I love what John does not say. He does not say the word became flesh and conquered Satan. 
or the word became flesh and dealt with sin. Those things, of course, happened. But more than all of that, he said, the the word became flesh and we saw his glory. We saw the character of God. Eugene Peterson puts it brilliantly in the message. He sums it up perfectly. I spoke to the young people on Friday night about it. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It came to where we were. He did not sit at a distance and said, you know what, if you follow these 10 rules, you'll be all right. He didn't give us advice for how to live. He came right into the midst of all the mess of humanity. And that is the model for church and church planting and ministry. That's the model. There's lots of models out there. Some of them are horrendous. They're just like marketplace sort of business plans. The model for ministry is to get right into the muck and dirt of where people are and bring the character and the glory of God to them. The good news that Isaiah was to proclaim was that God is coming. And the good news of Christmas that John proclaims is that God has come. He's come among us. Again, I had a conversation recently with a bunch of young people and I was asking them, what do you think God should do? Because they're full of questions. They rack my head. I don't, you know, it's just all these questions that they have. And I said to them, what do you think he should do? What do you think he should do? And I was steering them towards the answer. He needs to come and fix things. He needs to come and put it right. And I, and I said to them, he did it. <laughs> you know, he did it. What you want him to do, he's already done. And we are removed from it by 2,000 years, but it's as real today as it ever was. He came and he fixed the problem because the problem was sin. He has already done it. We beheld his glory. And John actually uses a wonderful word in in verse 14. Those of you that studied John last year with BSF or or Word in the City will know this. In in, in verse 14 he says, The word became flesh. In other words, God the Son put on humanity. And then it says further on in verse 14, And tabernacled among us. That's class. (laughs) Because in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was this place. It was in the center of everything. When they pitched the tent, the tabernacle, they put all the other tents around it in a circle. And all of God's people were focused on the tabernacle where the glory was. And whenever the tabernacle moved, God's people moved. Whenever it stopped, they stopped. Whenever God instructed them, I want you to move, they moved. When, I, when, he, when he said, I want you to put the tent up again and stop, they stopped. He was, the tabernacle was at the center of everything. It was in among the people. And whenever John says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, there's just this mind-boggling array of images that he's pulling in from Exodus. And it would do you good to just take time to dwell on it. And just think about about what that means, what that meant for God's people as they heard the tabernacle is back. The presence, the glory is back in among his people. So what was the glory that John saw? When he says, "I, I saw his glory, I beheld his glory, what did he see? It wasn't the transfiguration. 
The other Gospels all record this event, the transfiguration. John doesn't record it. He's not referring to that. He's again referring to the character of Jesus. Because he says in verse 14, the same words that are in Exodus 34, says that he is full of grace and truth. It's about the character that he saw. For three years, every single day, John saw the glory of God. When he went to that wedding at Cana and he saw the water turned into wine, he saw glory. He saw the character of God in that moment. Whenever John or whenever Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus and he was talking to Mary and Martha, and he said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? When Lazarus rose from the dead, there was another revelation of his glory. As Jesus went about in John's gospel and did what he did over and over again, glory just burst out of him. Not bright lights, not music, but the character of God. If you want to know what God is like, you need to live in the gospels. You must Otherwise, you will just manufacture what you think he should be like, what you think you sh- he should do, and your perception of God will not be based on Jesus and will not be based on the Word of God. And whenever you hit difficulties, you will crash and burn because you will find that the Jesus you have manufactured will not show up and fix what you want him to fix. You must be founded on a, on a proper revelation of the character and the glory of God. Everything Jesus did was glory. But there was one ultimate moment beyond them all. One moment of glory that was greater than all the others. Can you go to John chapter 2? I just want to show you something through a couple of chapters of John. John chapter 2 verse 4. At the wedding at Cana, initially, whenever Mary asks Jesus to deal with the, the problems and the, the fact that they had run out of wine, he says to his mother, my time or my hour has not yet come. There's something in Jesus' mind that, that lies ahead of him that is his, his moment more than anything else, his hour. And in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, My time has not yet come. Look at chapter 7. Chapter 7 and verse 30. They, They try to seize him. And it says that no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. There was a moment sitting out in the distance, out in the future for Jesus that had not yet arrived. But in John 12, everything changes. And with this, I'm drawn towards a close. In John 12, it says in verse 20 of John chapter 12, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. They listened to their request. They said, Sir... We would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Everything changes in that moment. 
Three years of saying the hour has not yet come. At that moment, when that request comes, we want to see Jesus. He says, this is it. The hour has come, and he goes on, he completes his sentence. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if, that, if you think that means bright lights and music and sitting on a throne and splendor, in this context, it definitely does not mean that. In the same passage, a little bit further on, verse 27, Jesus says, My heart is troubled. That's stronger language than comes across in the English. He's in, he's in turmoil. My heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And he speaks of it again at the Last Supper and says about his glory that is coming. And he prays in John 17 and says, Father, glorify your Son. And he says, let my disciples see my glory. And the glory for John is the cross. Now get that. You will not understand John's gospel, nor will you understand glory, nor will you understand when you hear John 1.14 read at Christmas what it means to behold his glory. The glory of God is most clearly revealed at the cross and nowhere else, nowhere else. That is where you see his character revealed. And it is in response to that amazing question that the the Greeks ask via Philip. And I'll tell you as a little aside, the reason they go to Philip, Philip's Greek. Philip is a Greek name. The Greeks go and ask somebody they can connect with about Jesus. You know what? There are certain people that I cannot connect with about Jesus. I just can't. It bugs me. Those of you know, you know, from Friday night, sometimes I'll just come over in frustration and say, I can't crack that kid. I cannot make a conversation there. It's driving me mad. And I just, I never will. I don't speak their language, maybe that particular person. But some of you will. Yeah? Some of you are the Philip that, that, that the Greeks are able to relate to in order to find out about Jesus. You cannot leave all of ministry to a handful of people. There are every single one of you in this room, there are people in this town, and you are the only person who will actually be able to communicate Jesus to them in their language. And if you sit back and think, I go to a half-decent church and they do this and they do that and and people will be able to hear about Jesus, but you don't actively get involved yourself on mission, there are people who will not hear about Jesus because they need to hear it in their language and you're the only one who speaks their language and you're staying quiet. The Greeks came to Philip because he was Greek. And this radical statement of Jesus, which, which is just weighty when he says the hour has come, for him was difficult to say. Moses said, I need to see glory. Isaiah said, get ready, you're going to see glory. John said, we have seen his glory. And the Greeks asked this question or made this request. We want to see Jesus. And I want you to get this. That request is inside the heart of every human being on earth, whether they realize it or not. Every single person in every nation. We're obviously quite focused on our own locality at the minute. But we want to stretch and we want to increase. And don't please don't be thinking this is it. 
But every single person on that street today, in their houses today, whatever they're doing, every single person, there is a cry in their heart that they don't understand. And that cry is saying, I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. Every man, woman and teenager and child in this town needs to see glory. And will only see it when they see the cross and see Jesus. They will not see it any other place. And it's really interesting when you jump from Isaiah 40 verse 5 where where Isaiah talks about all flesh seeing the glory of God. Simeon in another Christmas passage in Luke chapter 1 quotes that but he doesn't say all flesh shall see the glory of God. He says all flesh shall see the salvation of God because the glory of God is is in salvation. It's in the cross. It's in Jesus. And it's, this is another whole message, but his glory is most clearly revealed when he suffers. All right, let that rattle around you. His glory is most clearly seen when he suffers. All through Mark's gospel, people don't recognize Jesus. They don't know who he is. They get confused. But at the cross, there's a Roman soldier who says, this was the Son of God sees him in his suffering, sees him in his glory, and recognizes who he is. Somebody else is involved. Satan responds, and with this I'm done. Satan responds in in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. His absolute goal, if, if, if you're to sit down with, Satan and say, write down in one sentence, what is your strategy? What do you want to do? What, what is at the heart, if there is a heart, what is at the heart of everything you do? At the heart of everything he does is he wants to stop people from seeing glory. That is Satan's battle plan. If I can prevent them from seeing glory, I can keep them out of the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 4, just a few phrases from verses 4 to 6. Paul says, the God of this world, listen to this now. Think about how glory is the character of God revealed in Jesus, particularly at the cross. And here now is Satan's response. The God of this world has blinded your mind. That's Satan. Has blinded your mind to keep you from seeing the light of of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I pray that God who said, let light shine out of darkness, will shine in your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says our mission aim is to get the blinders off people's eyes so they can see glory. What the devil does is he bombards people, including me and you. He bombards us with attractive distractions. As soon as we get close to seeing glory, have you ever had you know, conversation with, with, with people and, and they, they get close to somewhere that you don't really go and then you're just frantically changing the subject? You know, let's, let's get away from that question and let's move somewhere else because I don't want to talk about that. You ever do that? Or, or maybe you've got something, 
Maybe you've got a surprise in the house and you don't want someone to see it. And you're like, no, 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 don't go into that room. Let's, let's go to another room. Let's have our coffee in there instead. Satan, on a much more serious level, is doing that. As soon as somebody comes close to glimpsing the glory of God, he is just full on distraction, distraction, distraction. All these bright, sparkly things that he will put in front of people so that their eyes will follow those things instead of seeing glory. All of us have one of them, and it's called the television. And there's nothing in itself sinful about that piece of hardware. But you know what? For some of you, it is the greatest blinding distraction from seeing the glory of God. The messages that it is putting into your heart. And Satan's just happy as Larry because as long as you're looking at that light, you're not going to see glory. And I watched TV this week. I watched a movie with Rach this week. I'll be watching a movie this afternoon with, with everybody. Nothing wrong with it. But the messages that a lot of us are bringing into our home through that on a repeated basis are just distractions, meaning that, that ourselves, our spouses, our children are not going to see the glory of God. Be careful. Be careful with all the glittery, sparkly, attractive things that come into our lives and distract us. They are satanic. They're satanic. Anything that distracts us from seeing his glory is Satan's tactic. So Moses tells us in conclusion again and repeating again just so that you get it. Moses tells us that we need to see the glory of God. Isaiah tells us that it is coming. John tells us where to look. And the Greeks tell us the request that is in every person. We want to see Jesus. And the only thing that will fill your life with the peace that you crave is for you to look at the cross. Particularly the cross. Not just the Christmas tree and the manger, but the cross. And see the glory of God. And I hope that little verse in, in John 1.14 will just ring around your head today and tomorrow in particular. About how God became flesh, tabernacled among us. And we saw and we are seeing his glory. And that you'll get serious about removing those blinding distractions from your life. And that somewhere in your prayers today or tomorrow, you might just blurt it out. Lord, show me. Show me your glory. Let's pray.